Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. And I'm Eddie Albron, also a graduate student at Stanford. Today, our guest is Daniel Dombek, an assistant professor of neurobiology at Northwestern University. We'll be speaking with him about high-resolution microscopy, mouse virtual reality, and grid cells. All this and more coming up. Great. We're here today with Daniel Dombek, an assistant professor of neurobiology at Northwestern University. Thanks for speaking with us today, Dr. Dombek. Uh, sure. Happy to be here. Great. So um, I guess to start off, as uh, students and postdocs here, we're always a bit curious about how people first get into science. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about where you grew up, what you were interested in, and how that uh, got you to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so I grew up in a small town in northern New Mexico um, in the mountains called Los Alamos, New Mexico. Um, so it's, I guess, somewhat famous. It's the home of the atomic bomb. This is where... Uh, uh. The uh, Manhattan Project um, was based back in World War II, mm -hmm. right. um, and so um, you know after World War II, the government um, turned the facility into a national uh, research lab. So they do some weapons research and they do some other types of research: basic science, physics, chemistry, biology. And so um, you know, uh, almost everybody in the town has something to do with uh, with the lab, with science. Mm -hmm. And so my dad worked at the lab. Um, he's a high-energy physicist. And so um, I used to go into work with him, um, see his lab, um, see what he was working on. And I think that sort of started my early interest um, in, in science. But the whole town was sort of a, a kind of techie, nerdy, um, sciencey town. And so things like um, the science fair were actually kind of a big deal in Los Alamos. Um, and so, you know, in elementary school, everybody would do a science fair project and you know it was kind of competitive and so my my dad and I would work on um, science fair project ideas together and he kind of helped me out and um, we made a lot of crazy things and I, I did pretty well as an elementary school student <laughs> um, you know I don't want to pat my own back too much as an elementary school student but you know it was a lot of fun yeah do you have a good memory of a favorite science fair project that you did as a kid um so I, I, I embarrassingly can probably tell you every single one that I ever did. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I, I guess as a, the first one I ever did when I was in kindergarten, uh, my parents told me it was called uh, uh, Paper Airplanes and How It Flew. Okay. <laughs> um, and I just made airplanes, paper airplanes, and I would um, draw the flight path of each of them, and um, that was basically it. Um, and then I, you know, I got more sophisticated as I grew up. And um, in third and fourth grade, um, I think I made, uh, I think it was one of those years, I made an electromagnetic um, rocket launcher. Uh -huh. um, and so that was basically just uh, a bunch of coils of wire uh, uh -huh. making little electromagnets, um, and they were connected to a battery. Um, and the connection to each one was, uh, to the battery was made with this ball, metal ball rolling down a hill, and it would sort of uh, successively activate each magnet, and it would pull a uh, permanent magnet that was in the bore of this thing through and launch uh -huh. it out at the end. Uh -huh. um, so oh, wow. that was a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that all started my early interest in science, I yeah. guess. And my, you know, my, my mom would also take me to the uh, thrift store in town, uh -huh. um, and I'd spend my allowance on old TVs and radios and appliances mm -hmm. and take them apart and uh -huh. find pieces for the science fair or pieces to make an airplane or a, a boat or something like that. And so that all kind of got me interested in how things work and, and mm -hmm. sort of into engineering and that sort of thing. 
Yeah, started early. <laughs> started early, yeah. And it, you know, it went on through um, through middle school and high school. And I, you know, I went to space camp. I saved up money and um, sent myself to space camp a few years. So um, it's just sort of uh, that nerdy lifestyle in Los Alamos kind of persisted through my life, I guess. And so I guess you know, as you were saying, your dad was was physicist basically, and right. and and, um, and you were doing a lot of these projects that. Involves space and, and physics, maybe, um, yeah. and and so you you know you went on um, as an undergrad to actually major in physics at the University right. of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, um, and you also did your master's in physics at Cornell. Right. So um, obviously, um, our listeners might realize that right now you're doing a lot of work in neuroscience and kind of like biology, biological issues, but obviously applying um, a lot of tools to that. Um, so you actually did your, your PhD, um, in, in the topic was imaging biological tissues in Watt Webb's lab, also at Cornell, I think. Um, and so right. technically your PhD was in physics, but you were interested in biological right. tissues. Can you tell us how you got there? Yeah, um, you know, a lot of it I'd say is partly by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I knew I was going to go into science of some kind um, growing up, and um, I think probably just part, partly following in my father's footsteps, decided physics was a good place to start mm-hmm. as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And you know, I did research as an undergrad in different areas of physics, solid state physics, high energy, right. and it you know it was fine, but it just it didn't really um, you know pique my interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sort of toward the end of undergrad, I I was looking around for other um, you know things I could apply my uh, physics background to. And, um, I, you know, I had already applied to physics grad school, so I knew I was going to go to a physics grad school, but, you know, I asked around and a lot of people were talking about biophysics as sort of the next um, sort of untapped area and, you know, one of the new exciting um, areas. And so I re- read a lot of books um, written by physicists about biology, and I got interested in biophysics, and so I decided I wanted to work in biophysics. And so of all the places that I had applied for grad school, I um, found what I thought was the best biophysics lab, mm-hmm. and um, that was Watt Webb's lab. And so I... I joined his lab, um, and it was, um, you know, when I joined um, early 2000s, it was, it was a very, very exciting place at the time. He ran a pretty big mm-hmm. lab, um, great resources, um, he, and he had people in the lab of all these different expertises from, you know, uh, lipid biophysicists to molecular biologists all the way up through neuroscientists, and there's a medical doctor in the lab as well. But what kind of things did you think about doing? Um, so there, there were many, many options, um, and this was actually this is one of the pitfalls in Webb's lab yeah. as well. That we all said that he, uh, the saying was that he gave us a lot of rope to hang ourselves <laughs> with, um, because there was this, you know there's all these toys around and incredible resources and all these ideas, and you could just go in and work on you know 15 different projects at once because everything was so exciting, and then. You know, you didn't meet with Webb very often, and so he'd sort of call you in after six months or a year and say, what have you done? And you better have done something, you know, pretty impressive. Um, and so, you know, I, um, I, I had been given the advice to watch out for that. Um, and so I, I talked with him early on, and he suggested a few projects that he thought might be a good fit for me. Um, and I'm, to this day, I don't know why he picked those projects. That maybe it's just what he thought was exciting, you know, that uh-huh. <laughs> Um, but one of them was uh, a, a project to image membrane potential of neurons using um, a technique called second harmonic generation. And so it, it's something that, um, that I got pretty interested in. I read the papers. It looked pretty interesting. I started working on it in the lab, and it, it worked um, you know, pretty uh, quickly and easily for me. And 
Um, and so that was really my entry into um, imaging and neuroscience. And it was really just kind of based on the suggestion from Webb of, oh, this looks interesting. He could have easily said that day to, you know, study the um, photophysic, photophysics properties of quantum physics. <laughs> but instead he said, you know, how about this? Yeah. And so that, I think, you know, looking back in retrospect, that kind of defined the path that I've taken in, in, um, in he, science. So he didn't necessarily so, have to suggest a, a neuroscience type thing, did he? He didn't, yeah. right? He, there was there that was a, a small fraction of his lab. There was a small contingent of people, you know, in the lab, maybe twenty people in the lab, and three or so of them were doing neuroscience. And um, he just happened to suggest that. And I I liked the project, and I liked the people that were working on neuroscience in the um, lab. And so that's it. Just sort of snowballed right. from there. I guess. And so to go a little bit deeper into that project, what I what my understanding was that you were trying to image activity um, in tissues that deeper um, brain tissues than it had been done before and you were trying to demonstrate that what of uh, the second generation harmony which is a so-called non-linear technique um, yeah. uh, could be used to measure this fast activity in deep brain tissues can you tell us why okay number one for for those who may not know yet why this was a difficult thing to image activity so deep and well, what exactly yeah. is a non-linear technique and why did you apply it here if you could do so simply sure yeah so a bunch of questions yeah. there um, well, so let me start out with, so the application to deep imaging, um, you know, I think second harmonic generation is partly, um, you know, it can certainly image deeper than other techniques at the time, but the, the real advantage to using second harmonic generation was that we, we thought at the time that it would give us a higher signal to noise for recording things like action potentials optically. And so the um, you know, I can go into talking about imaging deep in tissue um, in a little bit. We can talk about two-photon uh, fluorescence, for example. But for second harmonic generation for imaging membrane potential, the idea is that um, if you're trying to image the membrane potential of a neuron, you know, optically record the membrane potential, um, it's, a very, it's a very difficult problem. And one of the big uh, fundamental problems is that it's not like imaging um, calcium that's rushing into a cell where you have the whole volume inside the cell where you have the calcium concentration changing and you have this big area that you can record, or this big volume that you can record and average the signal change. For memory potential, it's a very small um, uh, region in the neuron where you have the signal change occurring and that's right across the very small plasma It's very membrane. local so within the cell, I guess. It, it's very local and you can only get a certain number of um, dye molecules in there that can actually respond to that mm -hmm. change. And so those dye molecules need to have a very large signal change uh, for you to actually see something. Um, and then there's also a very big problem that when you label the plasma membrane, those dye molecules don't just stick into the membrane, but they also um, stick to proteins and other things that are hanging around that aren't in the membrane, and they create this background signal. And so that background signal reduces the signal change that you see from the molecules that are actually in the membrane. And so this is where second harmonic generation came in, and, and we thought it was going to have a, a pretty big advantage in that it's a um, nonlinear optical process, uh, like, like you described. And so um, essentially what it is is a process that converts um, one wavelength of light into a wavelength of light that's uh, that it's half the wavelength. And so if you send in a 900 nanometer um, laser beam, into a, a second harmonic scattering medium, you'd end up with um, some 450 nanometer light, so half the wavelength, twice the energy. And the important thing is that you only generate this um, second harmonic um, light, these second harmonic photons, from dye molecules that are all pointing in the same direction. They have to be properly oriented. And so 
um, the only the the way that we the molecules that we used and the way that we did the staining the only place that these uh, molecules were all oriented in the right direction was in the plasma membrane and everything else all this non-specific labeling that we had elsewhere those signals canceled out and so we'd only see signal from the dye molecules that would actually be responding from uh, responding to the membrane potential changes and so it was very effective at reducing this background signal and letting us just see the signal change from those dye molecules but um, it had some big problems in that um, it, it, the signal changes weren't really large enough to overcome a lot of the noise, and so we had to do a lot of averaging. Um, and then one of the other problems was that um, almost all of that second harmonic light that was generated was forward propagating, um, so down deeper into the tissue, essentially. And so mm -hmm. we were doing all of this in brain slices and in culture, and so that was fine. We could collect with a detector on the other side. But um, if you imagine wanting to go to, to in vivo, having your, your photons, your signal photons going deeper into the brain is a major problem. And so that really, you know, is one of the things that really killed it. And so, uh, you know, now I'd say genetic engineering is probably going to be the way to solve the voltage imaging problem. I see, I see. Um, and yeah. and um, going back to like nonlinear techniques, so basically it's something mm -hmm. that amplifies, seems like, your signal a little bit. Um, and two photon is also a nonlinear technique. So did you work, you yes. worked on that also while you were in Watt Webb's lab? I did, yeah. A, a bit at the end, um, I, I worked on a, a project with a, a postdoc in the lab, uh, Mike Levine, um, to try to extend the imaging depth of, of two-photon microscopy. Um, and so, you know, as you were talking about earlier, you know, imaging deeper into tissue, and you know, asking why um, nonlinear methods um, help you image deeper into tissue. Um, and so, you know, the the if you imagine um, wanting to image down. Um, deep into tissue and resolve individual neurons and spines and that sort of thing and not have background signal from um, other labeled neurons that are above and, and below the, your, your um, structure of interest, um, the biggest problem that you have to overcome is light scattering. And so photons scatter off of membranes and proteins and, and DNA and that sort of thing. And so um, it's, it's, so it's convenient to think about um, this, the, the problem of imaging deep in tissue um, in, um, in, by looking at the two pathways, so the excitation and the emission pathways. Um, and so the excitation, um, if you think about, uh, you know, on the excitation side, you're essentially trying to form a nice tight focal spot down deep in, in, um, you know, in the brain to image your um, small structure of interest. And so if you have light scattering, then that focal spot gets blurred out um, and that degrades your resolution. And so two-photon uh, microscopy partly gets around this by using longer wavelength light. It uses near-infrared light, which doesn't scatter as much. Um, and then because it's a nonlinear process um, requiring a lot of laser intensity and, um, uh, uh, and essentially requiring the, um, the fluorophores to absorb two photons at the same time, the only place where you have enough intensity for that to happen is right in the focal spot itself. And so even if you have some light scattering outside of the focal spot, that really doesn't contribute to your signal. It doesn't generate any fluorescence. Um, and so on the excitation side, two photon can generate this nice tight focal spot down deep in the tissue. Um, and then if you think about then trying to collect that fluorescence um, that's generated down deep in the tissue and somehow get it back out so you can detect it, um, you, you know, thinking about the, the emission pathway, um, this is all, there's also a problem with light scattering, that fluorescence that's generated down deep scatters on the way out. And so um, one photon uh, fluorescence methods generates, uh, it generates lights, light all throughout the focal cone, not just at the focal plane and not just at the focal spot. And so 
Um, if you want to resolve something in the focal plane with one photon, you have to somehow image um, that focal plane um, through the scattering tissue. But if the light scatters, then it, it blurs out the image. Um, and so that really isn't a problem for two photon because you know where the light is generated. It's all generated only in the focal plane, and so you don't have to worry if it's scattered around because you know where it came from. It's sort of defined on the excitation side. And so that um, sort of confinement of the focal spot on the excitation side and then not worrying about any out-of-focus um, light that's generated um, on the emission side makes uh, two-photon uh, you know, pretty ideal technique to image with high-resolution deep and scattering mm -hmm. tissue. Um, and so, uh, you know, at the end of my time in Webb's lab, um, we, uh, we had an idea to um, extend the depth of two-photon. So even it has uh, limitations for how deep you can image. You can really only go maybe seven, eight hundred microns down into I mean, the brain if you want to go. Oh, you're still you're still limited. Like even though even though you're controlling where you're focusing the light because you're you're only focused on or it only really matters where the two light beams uh, combine. You still have to like get the light down there. Is that the problem? We still have to get the light down there. I mean, so it's all it's it's all just one light beam. Right. It's just it all all the light comes together in the oh, focal sorry. spot. Okay. Um, but there's some other um, inherent problems um, of, of, you know, there are, there are, there is, um, you know, light scattering does become an issue in your ability to collect light. Um, the fluorescence light that's generated down deep um, really degrades as you go deeper and deeper. And there's some other issues with um, needing more and more um, light intensity generating fluorescence at the surface. There's some fundamental limits uh, that Winfred Denk has published some uh, nice paper on these limits. Um, and so you, you just you can't image much deeper with conventional two-photon microscopy. And so um, there are ideas for how to push the, uh, the imaging um, depth. And one of the ideas that we had was to uh, essentially you combine two-photon microscopy with a long, thin transfer lens. Um, and so we used this thing called a GRIN lens. It stands for a gradient refractive index lens. Um, and essentially what, is, what it is, it's just a... a long, thin cylinder of glass um, with a dopant in it that changes the refractive index across the radius, and it essentially acts as a continuous lens all the way along its length. And you can just think of it as a transfer lens that transfers an image from one side of the lens to the other. And so if you couple it then to your microscope objective, um, you can transfer, transfer that um, focal spot from the objective down um, to the other side of the grin lens. And if that grin lens is inserted down deep in the brain, then you can um, transfer that focal spot now as, you know, as deep as you want, basically as it only limited by the length of the grin lens, and generate fluorescence there. And then you can collect the fluorescence back through the same um, grin lens um, and essentially bypass all of the scattering that would have taken place uh, along the length of the grin lens. Um, and so... Uh, you know, it turned out to work uh, fairly well. There were some some issues that we had along the way, some technical things we had to get around, but it it, it certainly worked to generate images very deep into the brain. You know, millimeters right. And that's actually something that um, maybe unlike the second generation harmony has continued to be used more recently, I think, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that's uh, you know, the Schnitzer Lab at, at Stanford has has really been pushing that technology. Um, there's I'd say there's many labs that are using um, grin lenses. 
um, to image down deep in the brain. Um, and so it's certainly much more um, useful than I'd say the second harmonic. <laughs> sure. But lots of lots of progress making um, being made right on this on this problem that you were already working on at the time. Um, and another question we wanted to ask about uh, your your time in grad school. So actually, we had an inside tip from the former host of Neurotalk, Forrest Coleman, okay. who, um, as we'll mention, <laughs> we'll talk about your your postdoctoral work. But he was a graduate student in the lab that you were a postdoc in. Um, he yes. told we were lab we were uh, officers. <laughs> he knows me well, oh, so right. he can, can embarrass me. So we'll see what's coming. Yeah, um, yeah he was a great <laughs> host. Um, uh, but anyway, he tells us that we ought to ask you about the programming languages you were using during grad school. Oh, I'm wondering what's behind yeah. that. Um, well, I, I, he's referring to the fact that I wasn't using MATLAB, and I should have been. That's what he's probably referring to. So I had, I. There was no one programming language that everyone used in Webb's lab, um, and I used a whole host of different things. Um, Origin, um, Forrest always made fun of me for using um, LabVIEW for programming and doing image analysis, which looking back was, you know, it's worth making. <laughs> um, and so, you know, when I came to the Tank Lab, um, Forrest uh, convinced me to switch to MATLAB and showed me a lot of tricks, and essentially, you know, in a week or something, I could redo everything that I was doing with it's 10 different languages in MATLAB. Mm. So I was glad for us. <laughs> MATLAB is a very neuroscience-y, popular among neuroscience, neuroscientists, but yes. maybe not outside, maybe. I'm not sure. I, I, it, it should, it should be. be. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, all right. Great. So transitioning a bit, uh, Dan, to your postdoctoral work, um, you went uh, to work in the lab of David Tank, and those of us mm -hmm. at Stanford got a bit of a taste of your postdoc work last week during... Uh, Stanford's SNI Symposium, uh, when David David uh, highlighted the advances you made towards wide field two photon imaging in awake behaving mice. Uh, so okay. we talked a little bit about your expertise in in vivo imaging, but before we get into some of the great work you did during this postdoc, another forest tip we have is to ask <laughs> you about the first time you thought you saw a calcium signal in an awake mouse. Um, so I. Long story, I guess, but well, it was probably a dead or dying neuron is probably what the what I was probably seeing. Um, there were a lot of things to troubleshoot um, to get this awake imaging preparation working. Um, the dye labeling back in the day, this you know a decade ago, we were using um, exogenous dyes, um, bolus loading, invented mm. um, in the Connerth lab to to label populations of neurons, and it was is a very finicky thing. This, to is, get it this to work. is way before GCamp and mm -hmm. all this is way of versions of Lorenzo's coming out. Yes. Yeah. Exactly right. So that's you know now we just inject a virus or you know just grow the mouse and there it is. But you know back in the day you had to like do a perfect craniotomy, inject this dye solution. It had to be made exactly right. Mm -hmm had to be injected at the right time, and it was very hard to get it all to work at the same time. And so, you know, there were a lot of sort of um, false starts, I'd say, where I, you know, I thought I saw something interesting. We weren't sure exactly what we were going to see in the awake animal, and so any little flash of light was exciting. And looking back after things worked, you know, we looked back at a lot of the data, and most of what we saw was probably just dead and dying tissue. <laughs> so then when did you actually, when you actually did see the first neuron that was alive, I mean, did you know right away? Yeah, it was pretty clear. Um, it was, you know, um, the, the the morphology of the tissue and, and making comparisons to what people had done in anesthetized animals. Um, it, it was pretty clear. When and this, it, this was yeah. the first time anybody had done any awake imaging? Um, that's right. There was 
there was one um, demonstration um, from um, from Tank and, and Helmchen um, back at Bell Labs, um, maybe six seven years before my work, um, in that, and they they were imaging um, blood vessels in a awake um, rodent that was carrying a microscope with it, and there were some pretty severe movement artifacts, um, and so I, I mean I guess that that actually um, was sort of the dogma at the time. It was that you know basically until the, the work that I did in David's lab, I think the dogma was that there just was way too much brain motion. There's The brain was going to be jiggling around too much that it just wouldn't be possible to image with cellular and subcellular resolution. Mm-hmm. So moving on to the famous, uh, or legend, rather legendary, mouse on a ball experiments. From reading your papers at the time, it seems as though the great challenge in imaging these large populations it wasn't so much in applying the high-resolution technique of two-photon microscopy towards imaging a big window, but it uh, seems more to be of a mechanical issue. Can you tell us uh, more about how you came up with this uh, technique and where there are any possible, other possibly failed approaches that you tried? Sure. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, so you're definitely correct that the challenge was, and, you know, I'd say still is a, a mechanical challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, you know, I'll come back to the ball in, in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, you know, to take you back 10 years, you know, a decade ago when I was doing that work, like I said, it was the, the dogma was essentially that the brain just jiggled around too much. And so the, you know, the real focus of that project um, you know, it was sort of a side project, to be mm-hmm. honest, that we didn't really think it was going to work, um, and, and nobody really did, and I don't think many people were putting that much effort into it, because there was just this sort of wall that everybody had put up in their heads that it just wasn't possible, um, and, um, you know, so we sort of approached it very, um, you know, very mechanically, um, you know, we, the, the first thing to do was to reduce the movement of the brain with respect to the skull of the animal, and so we developed um, surgical techniques um, and special cranial windows and head plate designs um, to sort of press on the brain a little bit and stabilize it with respect to the skull. Um, and then, you know, after we did that, the, you know, the next um, question was how do you actually stabilize, um, you know, the skull with respect to the microscope and, you know, therefore the brain with respect to the microscope. And so that's where the head fixation came in. And so those, you know, those techniques, um, worked fairly well, these, you know, the quick seal plug and the special head plates and the head fixation. Um, <clears throat> and it worked well enough to minimize um, brain motion, um, you know, sort of by itself. Um, and, you know, the, the, the floating ball essentially was there to provide, <clears throat> provide the animal with, um, you know, a way to, to be mobile, to actually run around and do something more interesting than just sitting, you know, on a platform. Um, you know, I'd say originally we we thought um, that there might be some benefit to using the ball to reduce brain motion. So the idea was that if the animal's sitting on a rigid platform, then they could probably apply a lot of torque to their head that would cause brain move- movement. And if the animal was on a floating ball instead where they couldn't really apply as much force and torque, then that would reduce brain mo- motion. Um, you know, I'd say in retrospect, that's sort of, it's probably a pretty, just pretty, a pretty small component of, um, of that idea in reducing brain movement, I don't think that really contributed that much. You know, n- nowadays um, people have, uh, you know, they head fix their mice mm-hmm. and they have them run on all sorts of things like <laughs> bands and discs mm-hmm. and wheels and floating rooms on air hockey tables. Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool to see how this has all sort of expanded. Many great videos have come there, out. There are many exciting videos, yeah. Um, uh, you know, actually, as soon as we um, published that, um, that, 
first neuron paper, we got a video um, someone emailed to us. It was like the day after it was published from a group at UCLA, I think it was, that the, the grad students had gone out to Target um, and, and bought a tour of the Explorer ball. Mm -hmm. And they were floating this ball um, on pressurized air, and somebody was holding the rat above the ball, and they were the rat was running on it. So you know, came up with their own floating <laughs> well. ball. But you know, so there's it's lots fun. of different things that that animals can run on that people use now. There's all sorts of different head plate designs and surgery methods that work very effectively. You know, different from what you know what I did back then. Um, that that really stabilize the, yeah. the brain um, quite well. And so I, I think really the, you know, sort of the biggest lasting impact of that work was just that it is actually possible to image with cellular and subcellular resolution in behaving animals, right? right. That sort of overcoming that dogma. Right, just um, sort of paving the way. Well, I was going to say that, you know, the, the idea for the floating ball, um, you know, the floating ball came, mm -hmm. uh, it was in the lab. It predated me in, in David's lab. So there was um, a, a a few postdocs, um, Anton Kavaz and Tom Edelman, that I think had built the version that was around when I joined the lab. Um, and the floating, you know, animals, you know, running on a floating ball goes way back. You know, there was a, a few years before us, there was a group in Germany that did this with a body-tethered um, rat. Back in the 50s and 60s, people were um, putting um, insects, um, sort of fixing their bodies on, um, you know, onto something and then having them walk on a floating ping-pong ball. Um, I've even I've found a reference back to the 30s um, of an animal crawling on a ball, which I'll, I'll probably show that slide in my talk um, next week. It's kind of a cool slide, but it, you know the idea goes pretty far back. Old solutions to new problems and responses to exactly. new dogmas. Um, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean we all think we're pretty smart, and <laughs> we're clever and proud of ourselves, but if you look far enough back, somebody's probably. Right. So uh, on the topic of sort of extensions, uh, based on this. Uh, you know, preliminary work. So you, along with Chris Harvey, developed a uh, um, mouse virtual reality system. So can you tell us a little bit about how this development came about and possibly the, the needs that you had at the time for why you developed it um, and how this virtual sure. reality kind of compared to actual, you know, the actual experience that the animals had in um, running around in uh, the real world? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Forrest was a, a big part mm -hmm. of that um, work as well um, back in the lab. You know, the four of us with David um, sort of did that together. Um, yeah. I mean, so the idea was essentially that we wanted to um, connect with um, more complex behaviors that people studied in freely moving animals. You know, we wanted to do more than what we could get animals to do head fixed running on a ball in the dark. Right. And so. Um, you know, I think one of the most interesting phenomena that people study is the navigation um, behavior and navigation um, correlated neurons in the brain. And so we were very interested to connect and, and study those, um, those parts of the brain. And to do that in a head-fixed animal to get a spatial behavior, um, we, you know, the, the idea was to use a virtual reality environment. Um, and so, you know, essentially to... Uh, the animals running on the ball. We could record the movements of the ball with an optical computer mouse. Um, we built a virtual um, reality uh, display around the animal, and then we used a, um, a computer to generate the virtual reality world. Um, actually, Forrest um, downloaded um, an open source version of the Quake 2 video game. <laughs> That's what we used to, um, to, to build those um, first virtual environments. And so, you know, the animals' movements on the ball are then recorded and, and it's used to update the visual scene around the animal. And um, it was, uh, there was um, some hints that it would probably work from this German group that had used the body-tethered uh, uh, rats a few years before us. 
Um, and so, you know, there's some indications that it would work, but we didn't know if it would work in mice, which um, don't use their vision as, as much as rats do. Um, and then there was also the big question of whether the head fixation was um, somehow going to interfere with the animals interacting with the virtual environment. But you needed, I mean, in um, a way you needed this virtual reality because the head fixation, right? You couldn't, I mean... Yeah. That's right, yeah. I mean, if so the, the idea is if you want to um, use high-resolution imaging, two-photon imaging, or, say, intracellular recording techniques where you need uh, a great degree of mechanical stability, then the animal's head needs to be fixed. Um, or, you know, to, to easily apply these things, it does. Um, and so um, then if you want to connect to these other behaviors, you need um, something like virtual reality, and that's essentially what we came up with, right? So that's, that's exactly right. That's the, the need for um, getting spatial behaviors in head-fixed animals led to the, the virtual reality system. And, um, and because of these, the head fixation and, you know, the, the fact that these are mice, um, and you know whether they could actually interact with a visual virtual reality system or not. Uh, we had to do a lot of controls and compare the um, the properties of the cells that we recorded in virtual reality to um, the same cells that people had recorded in freely moving animals in in real environments. And so you know we um, studied place cells first. Um, and you, you mentioned Chris's work. Um, you know we recorded. Uh, these, so these are place cells are cells that fire at a specific location in the animal's environment. You find these in the hippocampus. And so we recorded the firing rates of the place cells. We looked at the widths of the place fields and the, the theta phase precession, the theta frequency, and all these things that we recorded in the virtual navigation task um, turned out to be very, very similar to what people had measured and reported from freely moving animals in real environments. And so that really gave, it gave us confidence and, and gives us confidence that um, the navigation circuitry is activated in these animals, and it's activated in a very similar way to um, to freely moving mm -hmm. animals. Mm -hmm. Was there a lot of tuning yeah. of the like? I, I've seen these videos of the virtual reality. There's lots of coloring and different yeah. hues. <laughs> was there a lot of adjustment in that stage? Um, there was. Yeah, there was a lot of discussions yeah. at, at lunch <laughs> about um, what patterns to use and you know if, if color should be used or not. Um, you know, one of the big discussions I remember was. Um, so to, to change the view angle of the animal in virtual reality, um, it's the the, uh, the yaw direction of the ball is what controls the view angle. Okay, so when the animal turns the the ball sort of side to side in the yaw direction, that changes the view angle. But the big question was whether um, the uh, the gain should be positive or negative. When the animal turns the ball to the left, should the virtual reality view angle change to the mm -hmm. left or should it change to uh -huh. the right? Um, and um, and there were good arguments on both sides of, um, you know, of that. There were, you know, people who came up with good reasons that it should be one way or the other. And in the end, I think either one would work that the animals could learn um, either one of those. Um, and it really wasn't clear exactly which one was better than the other. And so we just sort of by convention um, leave them, you know, it's a gain of one or, you know, it's a positive gain now. But, yeah, there was a, there was a lot of things that we had to, you know, sort of invent along the way and or, you know, or at least experiment and figure out because we just didn't know how it was going to turn mm -hmm. out. Um, but it ended up working, uh, <laughs> and um, and so then you so you finished that up, and then um, you went on to start your own lab um, at Northwestern just four years ago, so not too long ago. Yes. And you are right. you are still studying um, cells well associated with the hippocampus. So you were just mentioning place cells, but now you're studying grid cells. Um, yep. Maybe let's just start by having you explain what grid cells are. Maybe, maybe many in our audience have probably heard about them from the Moser's Prize last year. Um, but okay. uh, just start with that, and then maybe um, we'll get into why you're interested in them. 
Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, was, we're also we're still spinning place cells as yeah. well. Oh, and some okay. other stuff. Sure. The whole navigation circuitry, but we're, we have um, expanded into grid cells. So these are cells that are found in the uh, medial interrenal cortex. Um, they, uh, if, if you look at the firing pattern of an individual grid cell when the animal's running around in an open field environment, um, they have multiple firing fields, and the fields are arranged in a triangular pattern, uh, and that, is, that pattern's repeated across the environment. And so each cell essentially forms this sort of grid-like firing pattern across the environment. Um, and they're thought to um, form an internal representation of space, a metric for representing space inside the animal's head that animals could use to, say, measure distances between objects um, or, you know, distance traveled, or they could be used to build up the more specific spatial representation that you see in the hippocampus. Um, and so um, the, the, um, the, the field studying grid cells has, um, you know, has always sort of uh, centered around the question of how can you generate this amazing firing pattern um, you know, what are the, the, the uh, underlying mechanisms? And so that's, you know, what, what we're sort of after mm -hmm. um, that we're trying to study in my mm -hmm. lab. And, and is there something that you bring to bear with your um, imaging experience you think that's, that especially helps you in setting these cells? Yeah, I think, um, I'd, I'd like to think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, you know, they, it, it turns out that grid cells, you know, so my background is physics and optics, and I obviously would, you know, like to image these cells and um, see what we can learn about um, the mechanisms driving grid cell firing by using optical techniques. And so, it, you know, it turns out that uh, the interrenal cortex and where grid cells are located, um, it's one of the worst places in the brain for imaging. Um, it's, it, these, it's under a giant blood vessel. Um, the, the interrenal cortex is sandwiched between the cerebellum and the rest of the brain. It's very deep uh, beyond the reach of um, conventional two-photon. And so, um, you know, we, we came up with a technique using a microprism um, to, um, to, to image the interrenal cortex from the backside, from the, the caudal side of the brain. Um, and so we could essentially insert the, the um, prism down into the brain without actually disturbing any of the cortical tissue above, um, above the interrenal cortex. Um, and so we, with this little microprism, you can use your two-photon microscope mounted up above the animal's head. Um, and image down through the prism, and that rotates the imaging plane 90 degrees, and then you're um, imaging into the interrenal cortex. And so it's, it's a very um, difficult um, procedure and surgery, um, but when it works, it, it works pretty well, and we can chronically image large populations of grid cells uh, when the animal is running in the virtual environment. Neat. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I don't want to spoil your talk too much, but um, so maybe we'll just uh, kind of wrap up here and maybe ask for a short preview of uh, what you'll be speaking about here at Stanford. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm mostly, um, I'm, I'm probably not going to talk about grid cells too much, actually. I'm, I'm mostly going to focus on, um, on place cells, and I'm going to talk about um, some of the, the recordings that we've made recently um, from uh, place cell dendrites. Um, so this is from a recently published study um, where we're looking at regenerative events in the dendrites of place cells and the connection between those regenerative events and the firing properties of the cells. And so I'll uh, show some new data, some new activity patterns that we've seen um, that's unpublished and, and you know, talk about some um, of our most recent work where we're now trying to connect these activity patterns to how place fields form 
Um, and so when we put animals in new environments, how, you know, what's the connection between dendritic activity patterns and place field formation, essentially trying to understand how um, spatial memories are formed and how they're stored and how they're maintained in time. Um, and then at the end of the talk, I'm actually going to talk about something entirely new um, that's unpublished and that I just started talking about in public, so just in the last 10, 15 minutes of my talk. Um, and so that um, is something totally new for me. Uh, it's the dopamine system. And so we've been imaging in the dopamine system, um, and uh, we've found some very interesting activity patterns um, that relate to animal movements um, that we think um, helps uh, solve a mystery about the, uh, the dopamine system that's been around for quite a while. And so I'll, I'll talk about that at the end. All right, of the time. so people make sure to stay to the end of the talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, yeah. All right, so um, we'll just close with um, what we like to call our rapid fire questions. So usually these are short and fun, and we just want you to answer with whatever on the top of your head. You want right. to go ahead? So, and yeah, if you could go back. Are these, are these motivated by forest? Uh, maybe some of them, but, you know. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Dan, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Um, wow. <laughs> I, I'd say not to, um, not, to, not to worry so much. Mm. Um, I mean, I... Um, you know, I constantly was worrying about whether I was on the right path and whether I was studying the right thing. And, um, and I, I don't think I enjoyed um, my experiments as much as I should. I mean, I definitely enjoyed what I was doing. Um, but I, there was always a lot of uh, stress and, and pressure to kind of get things done. And, um, and I think you know, I came to realize, especially in my postdoc and, and more recently, um, just sort of the, the enjoying the process, mm -hmm. right? You know, building the thing doing the recordings and, you know, you have to enjoy that. Um, otherwise it just, um, isn't going to be worth it. Right. And so I think I, you know, I'm, I'm happy I learned that in the yeah. end. I just, I wish I'd learned it right. a little earlier. Going back to the science fair kind of joy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, the second question is, uh, inspired by Forrest's advice. Um, so he okay. told us to ask you about the methods of two of your papers. So the first one in a 2012 PLOS paper, we didn't talk about you, you say, uh, claps were generated using a custom built <laughs> wooden clapping tool. So we want to know about that. And then there's okay. also a 2009 Jane Neuro paper where you say, mm -hmm. to increase the frequency of grooming, Honey, honey, one part honey, uh, yes. one part water was periodically yeah. applied to the whiskers. I assume <laughs> to, to the mouse whiskers. Um, you yes. want to explain each of those for us, <laughs> real quick? <laughs> Is there much explanation? <laughs> yeah, um, well, so in that floss paper, uh, we were imaging um, in the cerebellum, and we had noticed a, a startle response mm -hmm. in the um, Purkinje cell dendrites. Um, that you know, when we talked or there was a loud sound in the room, we'd see a lot of activity in these dendrites. And so we started um, clapping with our hands to try to stimulate the startle, startle response. And our claps were all variable. You know, I would clap, and sometimes it wasn't as loud as it was before. <laughs> or you know, my coworker would clap, and his clap sounded differently. And so we wanted to make the clapping sound more reproducible. Uh. And so I made this basically just two large paddles I put together with a hinge with handles on each side. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it was so loud, um, it was just deafening. I think I, I'm sure I lost some of my hearing <laughs> from that thing. Um, and everybody in the entire lab in neighboring rooms were <laughs> when this thing would go off. Um, but it was very reproducible. Um, and then you know, the honey, um, so that, in that paper we were imaging in the motor cortex, um, in the forelimb motor cortex, and I, I was trying to study the differences and the activity patterns across the population 
um, during the, the two movements that the animal would do on the treadmill in the dark, and that was running and grooming. And they just didn't groom enough to get much data. And so um, I, I went to, um, to Wegmans, the local store there, um, and bought some honey, um, you know, good honey, <laughs> and, um, played with the dilution a bit, and one-to-one -one with water turned out to be the right mix, and I'd put it on the animal's whiskers, and then they would sit there and groom until it was all gone. <laughs> That's pretty clever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're just like eating. <laughs> yeah, eating and So, um, and then last question. SFN is over in your neck of the woods this uh, year, uh, taking place in mm -hmm. Chicago. So for all the poster goers who need a break uh, from the conference, could you tell us your top thing to see in Chicago or do? Um, I'd say just walking around in Grant Park. Mm. Um, you've got to see the bean. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a really cool... Um, uh, sculpture, giant sculpture in, in, uh, in the north end of the park mm -hmm. there. Um, and as long as it's a nice fall day, just walking around in the park is fantastic. Um, and then there's all sorts of, you got to try Chicago. <laughs> um, you can, you know, people will argue about what the best is. Um, this is the best. This is the best. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, hopefully the Cubs are still playing. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you can watch uh, the Cubs game in a bar with uh, fans. the local fans. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. We'll do. Okay. Thank you so much for talking with us today. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our co-host David Lipton will be interviewing Helen Maber, professor of psychiatry, neurology, and radiology at Emory University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Louise Guillem, Ada Yee, Andrew Gundren, and myself, Eddie Albron. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all the past episodes of NeuroTalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is NeuroTalk. I'm Eddie Albron.